welcome to Wrestling and Everything Coast to Coast with your host, Buddy Satello Esquire, and wrestling's premier photojournalist, Mike Leno. So, Mike, would you like to introduce our guest for tonight? Well, we have two great guests. Jonathan Schwartz is back from Slam Wrestling to help us co-shindig. And before I get into our terrific guest, I want to thank Sergeant Slaughter's daughter, Kelly, for introducing her and recommending her and referring her uh, to us. Uh, it was a big deal. We do thank because both of their fathers were very close for decades and decades. Uh, do not miss the Ray Jr. A&E documentary. I've got 18 purchase photos. I don't know how many are going to air in the thing tonight. Uh, that's the last one for a couple of weeks. Uh, also want to plug the terrific two-night NWA Billy Corgan massive event honoring the NWA, which Lord Alfred Hayes and Sergeant Slaughter were big parts of. That's in St. Louis. You can get that at Fight and uh, uh, I think Bleacher Report. And um, there were many lords in pro wrestling, a lot. Uh, some were not even from England. You had Australia's superstar Bill Dundee portraying a lord, but you had Lords, uh, Lord Athol Layton, who was a wrestler and uh, announcer for the Sheik in Detroit and Toronto, primarily Toronto, as Jonathan, he could probably elaborate on that. Obviously, Lord Tally Ho, James Blears, Lord Carlton, who managed Blears for a time. Uh, of course, Lord William, a.k.a. Stephen Regal, now with AEW. But I prefer to call our... Yes, and I wanted to do this show to honor Al Hayes, Alfred Hayes, not just as the WWF character, the sidekick to Vince McMahon when the nationalization occurred, whatever it was, December 83, January of 84, because he had an entire wrestling career as Judo Al Hayes before that, as everybody knows, started in the UK. We'll ask his daughter here, who is a hero as a uh, uh, Sarge's daughter. She didn't tell me. A, a big hero. And Candy is an emergency room helicopter uh, pilot and transporter of patients. I'm not sure. Well, she, we can go into her medical background, but you know, like if somebody here in California hikes too far, you know, not with buddies or they have a skiing accident. Uh, if Candy were out here in California, she'd be the hero that saved those folks. So a big round of applause to Candy, Lord Alfred Hayes, Judo L. Hayes' daughter. Big honor having you on. We paid tribute for the entire hour. Yeah, thank uh, you show. for coming here tonight. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thanks for thank having you. me. Let me go a little unusual and actually throw to Jonathan. And because, Jonathan, you uh, are a little bit younger than me, probably a lot. But you have delved into his career. What can you tell us about Al Hayes as the wrestler? We know his first U.S. territory, that's all I'll say to start with, was Amarillo for Dory Funk Sr. And, uh, you know, he had his only matches with Junior and Terry. But I'll shut up and throw to Jonathan. So my frame of reference for Lord Alfred Hayes was, in fact, his work with the WWF as it then was at the beginning of the national expansion, really running through 1995. Um, a number of great appearances across the early WrestleManias. Um, actually called the main event of the second WrestleMania, the cage match between Hulk Hogan and King Kong Bundy. But really, one of the things that I found fascinating about his lordship's career was that you could basically look at him as having two very distinct and really kind of um, important characters in the history of professional wrestling. The first was he was one of many British wrestlers who 
actually trained in judo, if I understand correctly. Uh, there were a number who came after him who affected a martial arts background, but he was actually legitimately trained and um, very competent at it. Came had a prolonged successful career starting in the 1950s in the UK, eventually came over to the United States, worked initially, if I understand correctly, as a face as a good guy wrestler before transitioning later in his career to a more villainous character. Go on a few years and especially as he gets a little bit older, wants to start working a little bit of a safer style as age and injuries start to accumulate. And he's one of the early adopters of this aristocratic, arrogant, high diction kind of characters. And I mentioned to Dr. Mike before, um, this is an archetypal character that you see kind of playing out across the territories and even today with guys like William Regal. So up in Toronto and particularly Hamilton, we had our own version of of Lord Alfred Hayes and Lord Athol Layton, even to the extent that he copied uh, the judo chop that um, Lord Hayes used, um, only calling it the Singapore chop. And both of those moves, I think, ultimately wind up getting appropriated by Hollywood sometimes later. If you look at the early Austin Powers movies, when he's out to subdue any henchmen, he goes after them with the patented judo chop. So I think if you kind of draw a line, you can find a couple of areas where um, Lord Alfred Hayes contributed greatly to wrestling wherever he went um, and helped build characters that not only established him as a great star, but created gimmicks that have that really are his legacy and that have been adopted by two very different sets of wrestlers even to this day. I actually have one specific question. I don't know if I if I can jump in the program, if that's okay. Of course. Okay. So as I was getting ready for the show, I had occasion to speak with my dad, who's also a lifelong wrestling fan. And he relayed a story back in about 1972 when, uh, at the time, Judo Al Hayes uh, fought Dory Funk Jr. for the NWA Heavyweight Championship and actually beat him clean in the middle of the ring. And what happened following this match was um, Dory Funk Sr. stormed the ring, outraged, attacked the referee who subsequently retroactively disqualified his son, and which had the effect of awarding the title back to Dory Funk. So one thing that I find interesting, and I'm wondering if you might have some insight into this, either kayfabe or in terms of what goes on behind the scenes as they're deciding to do this kind of storyline. What happened? Because one thing I find really interesting about wrestling history, especially with the NWA, is that there's any number of fractional or phantom title changes that have happened over the years. And this one really seemed to stick out in terms of how it came about. And I'd love to know what, it, to the extent that you might be aware, what the process was behind that. Because he won clean, and then yeah. you, you somehow disqualify somebody after the fact that it was not part of the match, which is insane. But Candy, what, what do you know about that? And uh, we'll, we'll get into a lot of stuff on your dad and yourself. Yeah, so I don't really know that much about the belts. I mean, I remember him having them, and I, I remember them going back and forth. Um, but what I can tell you about the Funks is that when we first came over to the United States, which would have been probably 1972, 
um, because I was about three or four years old, we essentially lived with uh, Dory Funk and his wife and his three children. And so <laughs> whatever was happening in the rink was, well, I was almost oblivious to it. I mean, I knew what he did, but um, our families were very melded together, um, in particularly um, Dory Funk's family. Uh, we were friends with Terry and um, his wife and two daughters as well. Um, and would hang out with them. They lived in Canyon, Texas. But um, we were brand new to the United States. And it was, you can imagine moving from London, England, because we actually lived in London. And moving from London, England to Amarillo, Texas was an, an incredible culture shock. <laughs> and um, we had a tiny apartment. Um, I remember the Funks had a huge ranch house on on. I don't know how much land it was, but at least a couple of acres. And we spent almost all of our time with them. They were really the only people that we knew. So as far as what was happening in the rink, all I can say is it was completely separate from the incredible friendship that we had with the Funks. And I'm forever grateful to their entire family because they really just took us in and treated us like family as newbies to the United States. I just got uh, an email about 15 minutes ago from Marty and uh, Dory Funk Jr. And uh, Marty is not the wife you met, but the later wife, Dory. Yeah, Jimmy. Jimmy was who I knew. Jimmy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, who was blonde. Um, but uh, and they said to say, of course, hello, Dory says to send his love to you and everything. And uh, I don't know if you're in correspondence with him, but what precipitated the move? Because Al Hayes. Uh, I was going to pull up his IMDb. I forgot if he went to Wigan, you know, if he was part of that whole Billy Robinson, Bert Asaridi thing, which uh, Jonathan might be able to go into some more uh, a little bit later. Uh, but what what precipitated him? Why did he come to the U.S.? Because we would see the same thing in about 1980, or excuse me, maybe 79 with uh, a wrestler loved and respected your dad. He went by the name then of Judo Chris Adams. And yeah, his I didn't remember Chris Adams. Yeah, he was our first, his first territory in the U.S. emigrating over was my home base, my primary home base of Los Angeles, that office, that wrestling office, where Gene LaBelle, who was a, he, he uh, we just lost him uh, a little over two, two and a half weeks ago. Gene LaBelle had many conversations about your dad with him, and he was Judo Gene LaBelle. But anyway, Judo Gene LaBelle finessed Judo Chris Adams to go over and tour and work for New Japan, which is then when he got hired to go where you are now in Texas, but work for Fritz von Erich. So what was, what precipitated the move? Because your dad was a huge star there, you know, yes. Kendo Nagasaki days, Mick McManus. Adrian. Right. Mick McManus is actually my, my uh, godfather. Um, really? Yes, yeah, him and, and uh, Barbara, him and his wife. Um, I used to call them my fairy godparents. <laughs> but uh, they, so when we were in London living, we had a really nice house in London and it was a very good situation. Um, but daddy was traveling a lot. I do remember him going to Japan a couple of times and just various other places. Once again, I was very young, um, so I just remember bits and pieces. But um, daddy was very excited just at the idea of living in the United States, that's a kind of a big deal. When you live in England, the idea of, it's almost mystical about moving to the United States. That was especially back then. And I think daddy saw it as an incredible opportunity. 
Um, and he had come to the States prior, prior to us moving over, and I think he really enjoyed it. Um, and I, I think he liked the idea of raising us in the States, if at all possible. Um, he thought that we would have better opportunities. Uh, me in particular, he was very um, forward-thinking with having a little girl. It really, my mom always said it changed his um, outlook on women and that he wanted me to have the best possible opportunities to do anything I wanted. And at that time, he felt that living in the States would be that. So a lot of coming over, from what I understand, was, yes, it was wrestling opportunities, um, but it was also to for his family. So we would have those opportunities. And it was tough at first because we left everything. When we flew over, we didn't, it wasn't like we mailed boxes of things over. We came with three big suitcases. I had to leave all my toys. It, we just had a couple of things. We had our suitcases and uh, we flew into Love Field. It was before DFW Airport was built, and um, which is uh, pretty interesting because fast forward to where I'm at now, I'm a pilot at Love Field. That's where I fly out of Love Field Airport in Dallas, which you think when daddy took us into there, he would have never, you know, he wanted me to have opportunity. And he would have never thought in a million years that that little girl, almost, you know, sparely out of toddlerhood, would be a, a pilot flying out of that airport many years later. So it, it, what happened to me was exactly what he was hoping for in that move. Why did you, you know move with, <laughs> with such little... Oh, sorry, Mike. What, yeah, why, Andy, how many, Candy, how many siblings do you have, if any? Is it... I do. I have an older brother, Kirsten. So why did your uh, why did uh, uh, your dad move with such little stuff? Did you just not have a lot in London? You know, it was a long time ago. I think now when you move and do a big move like that, you you know you have huge things that you send over our head or uh, it just I don't know why we didn't do that. We just didn't. Uh, and so we we started over again when we came here. I'm I'm not sure why why they did it that way, but I think things were just different back then. Okay, what sort of uh, quickly, Russ? Uh, born in London, Al Hayes attended Northwestern Polytechnic, where he was. Uh, uh, I guess he then went to Luton Modern School during World War II. He attained a black belt in judo before training to be a pro wrestler under Sir Athol Oakley. So another Athol, first name I've never heard of until Lord Layton up in Ontario. Uh, he, I guess, began his career as Judo Al Hayes, but there was another gimmick. He worked as the White Angel. Candy, yes. you, what, what, tell us about that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I feel like I'm letting you down because he. I don't know if he was just shielding us from these things, but I am familiar that he was the White Angel, but I don't know much about that. Um, I will just really quick, hearing about World War II, I have to tell you a quick story about Daddy that always made me so proud. Um, when he was, um, I don't know if you've heard of this story, but back in the in the 19, um, late 1930s, early 1940s, um, Daddy was living in, uh, once again, in London town. So that would be like downtown London. Um, so the Battle of Britain was about to happen. And um, I know we've all heard of that, which is where, where the, um, the German uh, bombers were coming over and bombing London. And so there was an organized effort to get all of the children out of London. And there's a big museum dedicated to it, actually, in London. But it was a massive undertaking. And all of the children were sent away. And Daddy was one of them. And they put them on buses and sent them out to the countryside. 
and daddy would tell me about this and he was sent out and unfortunately he wasn't with a very nice family and he wasn't treated well and he was just a little boy and he they were about about 50 miles outside of London and one night he actually left and walked all the way back to London and about when he was within about 10 miles he stole a bicycle and he never really forgave himself for that um, but, but I did. I told him, you know, he was forgiven for that. Um, but he, just to get him the rest of the way. But you can imagine a 10-year-old child doing this. And he showed up at his mother's doorstep, and they used to call him boy. And they're like, boy, what are you doing here? <laughs> and uh, they let him stay for a couple of days, and then he got sent back. But it's just kind of an interesting story. And um, he had a little girlfriend that, that was killed in the bombing that had lived, next, like, just down the street and um, and he lived, one of his neighbors was Richard Dawson, who Americans know from the Family Feud. Um, he was the host of the Family Feud, but uh, some, some incredible stories and things Wait, that Daddy looked through. Richard was my godfather, and uh, I spoke at his uh, memorial <laughs> in Westwood, California. So, Russ, I'm going to throw to you next, but hang on a second. Uh, Mark and Gary, his sons, Richard's sons, with the Marilyn Monroe of the UK, Diana Doors, who was Richard's. Yes wife. She remained there. He got custody of the kids, which was very unusual. I think he moved over in 62. Okay. Uh, but I uh, basically lived at their home through much of the 70s. I had kind of an abusive home and I went through uh, elementary school and junior high with his sons, Mark and Gary. They, Mark remains one of my best friends. And um, you know, there was X amount of times when Diana Doris would come over and, uh, to the U.S., but and she and Richard knew X amount of wrestlers. Uh, Richard stopped going. He, he was initially taking us before I could drive the kids, and Mark and Gary would shoot handheld in the front row while I was shooting ringside the still images for the promotion uh, at the Los Angeles office. But Richard stopped coming because he would cause a spectacle. Everybody recognized him from Hogan's Heroes laugh in and, mm-hmm. you know, match game a little bit, which was going on at the time. So what was it? Your dad knew Richard there? Was Richard- so they were neighbors as little boys. Um, they were uh, the same age. So they lived on the same street. Daddy knew him since they were just little boys. So you, um, yeah. <laughs> well, well, well. So hold on a sec, uh, Russ. So your father, Alfred George James Hayes, born August 8th, 1928. We lost him July 21st. 2005. So the very last time I saw him, and was sitting at his table for our three-day cauliflower alley thing with the two evening awards banquets. Yeah. Must have been, I, I think it was 2003, because I got the yeah. photos of your dad who was then in a wheelchair. Yeah, was, I have the award, and yes, 2003. Yeah, and Stu Hart. So I posed, uh, Stu Hart was in a wheelchair, so Roddy Piper and the Hart family, Bruce Ross, Diana, were there, and then Roger Kent, legendary AWA announcer, was also, you know, in a wheelchair, and they were all, you know, maybe close to the same age. But um, your dad was, so your dad. We've mentioned those those different lords, but even with Tally Ho Bleers, whose daughter was a world champion female surfer, you know, so we're this year really focusing on women and wrestling on almost every show. We try to have or talk about women and uh, be inclusive and, and just talk about the fact that women need continued elevation in the wrestling industry, which has always been white male dominated. Very nice, yeah. Um, you're, so I'm reading a little bit forward here. 
your dad, when he was wrestling, let's see, uh, Judo Al Hayes, he uh, was a star in the British circuit from the late 50s to the late 60s, where he left the United Kingdom, of course, traveled to the U.S. He was a blue eye who battled all of the heavyweight heels of his time. So I'm guessing that means babyface and held the Southern Area Heavyweight Championship for a number of years. He traded heavily on his judo background while wrestling in the UK, specializing in his famous judo chops and nerve holds. His most famous period was when he fought for Paul Lincoln Promotions as the White Angel under a hood with a massive feud against Dr. Death. I'm not sure which Dr. Death would be, maybe Jonathan knows. Death eventually won an unmasked haze. Hayes would later make a homecoming tour of the UK, including televised matches, which drew record ratings. During these bouts, he remained a heel and fought his way through most of uh, his old former tag team partners. It was explained that Hayes had inherited the dreaded American style in his adopted country. <laughs> and then we recall, because I think he was teaming as a babyface for Bob Geigel in Kansas City with Jumpin' Jim Brunzel. It was actually even partnering with Jim Brunzel before he teamed with Greg Gagne as the High Flyers. Oh. Gagne had trained, obviously, his son and yeah. uh, Jimmy Brunzel and Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat, etc. cetera. Uh, but listen to this. Hayes also wrestled in brief stints for his future employer, the Tri-WF. So this is the 70s, battling Bruno San Martino once for the World Heavyweight Championship. So Hayes in 72, here's where Jonathan was brought that up. He brought that up to me days ago. He defeated Dory Funk Jr. for the end of the World Heavyweight Championship. But the decision changed uh, when Funk's father, Dory Funk Sr., legend himself, attacked the ref. So they must have had that finish uh, booked in advance. A fit of anger, official disqualified Funk Jr. after the fact, thus inadvertently returning the title to the champion, which really blows. That's ridiculous. While wrestling for Sam Munchnik in St. Louis during the mid-70s, Hayes finally turned heel, adopting the gimmick of the aristocratic Lord Alfred Hayes. Hayes adopted also, so I remember him in the AWA managing Bob Remus, Sergeant Slaughter as mass, uh, super dis uh, Mark II, super dis yeah. Mark II, and the guy who was the uh, executioner in the Tri-WF was Mark III. Mark I had left, super destroyer Mark I being uh, Don Jardine, who was most famously masked as the, the spoiler. Uh, your dad also managed in Florida for uh, Eddie Graham. That's when he would come into San Francisco because my second home base was San Francisco for Roy Shire, who had lost his ability to produce new TV. So he was getting Eddie Graham's Florida TV with your dad on it, with the Funks, Barry Windham, Mike Graham, etc., and um, heel managing and uh, wrestling. And also even Montreal managing fellow Brit legend Billy Robinson, Baron Von Raschke, Jimmy Valiant. Mm -hmm we rebranded as King James Valiant. We'd see that copied in WCW and of course the Super Destroyers. Uh, he was notorious for delivering TV interviews in his new sneering aristocratic English accent, often sipping cups of tea with <laughs> and wearing a bow tie and frilly shirt. Yeah, the puffy shirt from Seinfeld. He was yes, yes, yes. He's called us his poet shirts. <laughs> he was to rock that. Speaking of shirts, tell us about your UK, the shirt you've got on there. Yes, well, I just wore this because I, I know my dad would have thought it was funny, but it's it's the basically a 4th of July shirt, and it says, Happy Treason Day, Ungrateful Colonials. <laughs> Let, let's throw to Russ before, because I kind of cut him off, but I want to get some of this amazing, well, I mean, because he was feuding as a babyface manager. Hey Mike, can I get a question in? Can I, can I get a question in, please? 
Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Um, yeah, I really wanted to know what it was like, uh, Candy, growing up as a uh, daughter of a, a famous wrestler. And you said he tried to shield you from it. Do you have instances where he, you, you would be getting some blowback from your friends or people in the Texas? Because people in Texas at that time cared a lot more about wrestling than, say, you know, in other parts of the country. So yeah. can you about your experience growing up with that? Right. Well, so when we first came over, I had a very strong British accent, which is hard to believe now, but I did. And when we would go, uh, so I'd go with Daddy a lot. Uh, Daddy and I were particularly close. We always were. And um, so I did like to go with him to the matches. And um, he would tell me not to talk to anybody. And I never really understood why, because I was young, and I probably didn't even realize I had an accent. But he was always worried that people would hear it if we spoke. So it was basically, you can't talk to anybody, be quiet. And then he would give me little, um, we would come up with little signs, and he would give me like a little, you know, sign in the rink to say hi to me, <laughs> things like that. But um, so that, so one of them was, yeah, don't speak. Um, and then once, once I started in school, and this was forever, he had taught me very young, don't tell, just don't tell anybody. Um, so I didn't, and um, from time to time, I don't know how people would find out, but they would. Um, and I really only, I got a hard time when I was in ninth grade. I had a, um, a girl who wanted to fight me, and I'm just, I'm not like that at all. It's just not how I am. I'm someone who always wants to help people, and and uh, she was just insistent upon it, and um, and I and I had a, a, a boy, um, well, a couple of different times, and we were up in Canada in Moncton, and I remember Daddy would talk about this for years. He was so proud of me. <laughs> we were walking out of the school, and Daddy was in his car, and Daddy said he was absolutely horrified because he saw a boy running up behind me who was aiming to hit me from behind, and I would have never known it. He was going to take me down. And uh, Daddy said he was absolutely horrified. He got out of the car and started, started running towards me. But it was, he was too far away to get to me. But when I saw what was, I could see from my dad's face there was something about to happen. And somehow, I guess I, I don't really remember this, but he would tell me the story. And somehow, I guess I realized what was about to happen. And I pulled my arm up and I, just as hard as I could, I hit him right in the head and knocked him down. <laughs> So there, there were a few different times like that where people try to take it out on me for whatever reason. Um, but, uh, but he just would tell me, just don't talk about it, which I never did. And there was no reason to. to. To me, he was just a normal dad. So there was, I mean, it was not something I would even think to say anything about. Um, so, yeah. Let me read a little bit more, and then I want to throw it to Jonathan and Russ again. Uh, well, let's see. He uh, had his first stint as a commentator taking uh, a neutral position. So it was sort of uh, quietly similar to his later WWF work. I'm sort of adding in here uh, in Jim Crockett promotion in Mid-Atlantic uh, in 1981. In other territories, Hayes stayed heel, uh, like in Montreal. And also in Florida in 1980, Hayes began managing Bobby Jaggers, while his regular manager, Sir Oliver Humperdinck, who was, uh, I think was from Montreal originally, was busy acting as Dusty Rhodes' servant for 30 days in an angle. Uh, after another protege of uh, Lord Alfred's, Ivan Koloff, lost a match to Rhodes with the same stipulation. When Rooster Humperdinck 
who had become a figure of sympathy during his 30 days of servitude to Dusty, returned to management and attempted to claim back Jaggers, Hayes, and another new protege. So I guess this is where, oh wait, another protege, Nikolai Volkov on leave from the Tri-WF, brutally beat up Humperdinck, thus starting a feud with Humperdinck, Lord L, and Rhodes. Hayes later worked as heel manager for Robinson for Elute International. That was the Rougeau promotion that WWF sort of kind of got their claws into. Uh, and that's when it went oddly from Mid-Atlantic. You know, they, Crockett was sending up all the Mid-Atlantic guys from the Carolinas to Toronto after they got rid of Sheik and that crew. And uh, so he's working as heel manager for Billy Robinson. That's incredible. I had no idea uh, for that group, and uh, which basically then was kind of run by the Rougeos, and uh, I think Dino Bravo was a big part of that, maybe Gino Brito as well, and uh, Jonathan can help us with that. Uh, during Robinson's reign, who was uh, with your dad managing him, but Robinson was holding Canadian International Heavyweight Championship, and also Hayes managed Bill Eadie, the mass superstar around this time. So big deal, and then we can get into the, tri or the WWF stuff with Vince Jr., but Tell us about your mom, and do you recall your dad smartening you up and uh, your your brother and yourself, your, your mom, your brother and yourself, or did that happen, or was it sort of something you just figured out, like Santa Claus? Um, do you mean just as far as, I, I don't, I, don't, I guess I don't understand the question. It's about the, the business, that the, they were cooperating, it's almost like the guy you're wrestling, the male or female that you're wrestling is your dance partner, and you are giving your body to them as they are to you. So you, you know, you are pledging yourselves not to legit hurt, right. look violent and hurtful, yeah. whereas, you know, you're not doing that, uh, that aspect of the business, because a lot of wrestlers never smartened up their family, particularly in the K-Fave 70s, 80s days, yeah. it's kind of changed, you know, mid 90s. Yeah, he didn't. Uh, he didn't really say. Now, I knew, da you know, Daddy was a heck of an athlete when he was younger. Um, and, of course, most people don't know him that way. They knew him as, you know, an, an elderly, uh, you know, commentator. But Daddy was a heck of an athlete. And um, and he was a third-degree um, uh, judo uh, black belt. Um, and when he was wrestling, I, I was never that worried, but I do remember sometimes it would scare me when he would get a cut on his face when he was in the rank, and it seemed, you know, they always bleed more than they, it's probably not that bad, but it looks bad. And that's when he would give me, like, the little, you know, face gesture that he's okay, and he would look at me and wink. And um, But, yeah, he never, I mean, my, my mom definitely knew, and I just kind of figured it out over the years. It took me a while. Well, that's almost uh, Carol Burnett-like is his way of communicating with you the way Carol did with her grandma who raised her. That's incredible right there. Diana, yeah. you know, my wife's big into, we have to watch PBS and all the British stuff's and Acorn. And <laughs> you observed, I stayed over at Jackie Paolo Sr., Mr. TV. He was a huge wrestling legend, you know, not the class athlete your father was, which is the point of this show. But uh, Lord, uh, or excuse me, uh, Jackie, Mr. TV, Paolo, and then his son, Jackie Jr., I went over there. But Diana, Diana Doris used to call them Bobby Dazzlers, which is, is that an expression you're aware of, where you're a fancy pants, uh, <laughs> erudite, British type person, and, and your dad would kind of adopt that in his most classic persona. And again, your dad more famous globally because everybody in all probably every country on the planet almost jonathan can correct me was getting wwf tv in those days right. so 
83 on, excuse me, 84 on, and saw Lord Al Hayes on Tuesday Night Titans and all the other programming. So, Jonathan, yes. let me throw to you. I'll shut up here. Sure. So, um, I just two uh, points to um, that you mentioned earlier. Uh, Doctor Death. Actually, there have been many Doctor Deaths over the years, which has probably no surprise to anyone since it's a fantastic alliterative wrestling name. Uh, it was actually Paul Lincoln, who was Australian. And he'd worked um, primarily in the UK and in Australia, and it actually, for most of his career, built himself as from Hollywood in the US. It, uh, one thing that's kind of interesting across the board is um, you know, being familiar with the version of wrestling that we get from NWA, WWF, AWA, we're always used to these foreign heels who come in, whether they're from Russia or the UK or Canada, especially Quebec and my especially Quebec, because they speak a different language, um, and really ac across the world, whether they're actually from there or not. But if you turn the tables and look at how people are, and, and look at the characters elsewhere in the world, um, American wrestlers coming into the UK were often booked as heels. Certainly in Canada, with exceptions, you would you would have Americans come in and in many cases, they would be booked as very strong heels, um, you know, stereotypical, ugly American kind of mannerisms, that kind of thing. Um, and certainly if you go over to Japan as well, and JPW particularly has built whole heel stables around the idea of the invading Gaijin forces who would want to come in and take over um, or behave very badly and basically act in ways that would be completely unacceptable to what a local crowd would be. So just kind of interesting that you can see both sides of it. Um, and again, similar to how in um, in American wrestling, where people are built from often has very little to do with where they're actually from. Um, same thing across the pond as well, where you'd have Australians being built as Americans. Um, there's a whole host of um, people who are built as being from various parts of Asia or Africa or South America, none of which really bears <laughs> any relation to reality. And frankly, I don't know that much of that would fly today, given the current climate. Industry, the film industry, they need to get over to the wrestling because you know they're upset at, uh, say, a straight actor playing a trans or gay actor uh, or uh, like, uh, wasn't uh, Tom Cruise or who was it that was in The Mexican? Was it Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt. or something? in the Mexican and people, you know, we need to sort of get rid of all this weird racism because as you know, post-World War II, the Japanese were evil salt throwing uh, folks in the US, the wrestlers, the Germans were goose stepping like it was still, Hitler was still around and we're talking even in the 60s and 70s with Baron Fritz von Rashke, that was his initial work name or you know, the evil, horrific Russians, you know, all ridiculous, stereotypes and even any of whom were Quebecois. Ivan Koloff being one of the best examples. Well, listen to this one. Now, you said the word gaijin, that is foreigner in Japanese, but it's actually, I asked my Japanese editor, Wally Yamaguchi, that's white foreigner. Yes. And the word for an African-American foreigner from particular, obviously from the States, the U.S., is a cocoa gene because the word cocoa denotes their color, their darker color. And that sounds racist to me, Kokujin, you know, why wouldn't all foreigners, why wouldn't you just have one word, Gaijin, for all foreigners? But I, I digress on that. But your dad is famous because 
he did that, but he always did it with a wink, Candy. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. And he seemed to be really having a blast with it and yeah. fun. And it seemed like it was not scripted. He maybe no. it was, but he was such a good actor besides being a class, class athlete. Yeah, definitely not scripted. And uh, yeah, it was very tongue in cheek. And Daddy, I, I think the overreaching thing that I would like everyone to know is how hilarious he was always. Um, he could, you know, he absolutely would separate his wrestling from home life, but it never, he never separated his sense of humor. He was the funniest person I've ever met in my life to this day. Just, just, and always up for a good gag and constantly, constantly teasing me, you know, hiding around corners, trying to scare me. <laughs> just, I mean, just funny. And him, him and, uh, I do remember Paul Lincoln cause they were very good friends and uh, I just have to tell just a quick funny story with Paul Lincoln and uh, do you know Ray Hunter? You heard Ray Hunter? He's on. It was an Australian wrestler around that time as well. With Mick McManus, Ray Hunter, Paul Lincoln, and my dad, they all used to hang out. And um, <clears throat> Paul Lincoln and my dad actually purchased a hearse um, car, uh, like a funeral, you know, car in in London and bought this car, and they would just go out. This had nothing to do with wrestling. This was just their idea of a good time. And Paul Lincoln would get in the, it, they had a casket and everything that they bought. And Paul Lincoln would get, they would paint like his face white and stick him in this casket, and they would go to like restaurants. And my dad and Ray Hunter would go in, and, and, and they would wear like black suits. <laughs> and then, and people would see the hearse as they'd come in, they'd make sure they park right up front. And then, all of a sudden, the door would open and Paul Lincoln would get out and come running in the restaurant. <laughs> but this is what they did away from wrestling. They had this all this shtick that they would do. So, Well, that was all pre-Undertaker, so maybe he had a hand in that because he was still around. Yeah. So, I mean, but that was just an idea of the – he. I mean, there's a million stories like that. I'm just constantly up for shenanigans. Very, very funny, funny person. The ribs, the ribs. I'm going to throw over to Russ, but I just want to ask, what did you and your mom think when you first saw him? as Lord Alfred, like co-hosting this mock Johnny Carson Tonight Show with right. this. Well, my mom was divorced, or I was divorced and she remarried an American. So uh, oh. I have no idea what she thought about that. Um, but um, yeah, it was fun. I enjoyed it because um, I could see, I could, if I wasn't with him um, geographically, I could watch him on TV. And so that was um, fun, you know, that I could see him. And it's still, it's what's really neat is I go back and can watch YouTube videos and see my dad anytime I want. And my son, so he, my dad has two grandsons, Hunter, who's uh, 17, almost 18, and Gunner, who's 10. And um, so they've taken particular interest in, you know, who he is. And, you know, it's so it's good. You think they might be interested in getting in the ring? Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. They both want to be, well, the oldest, the oldest one wants to be an airline pilot. And the I'm, I'm married to a former um, fighter pilot, Navy Marine Corps fighter pilot. So the little one wants to do that. But we'll see. You never that's know. A good, that's a good segue because, you know, you have planes all around you in the background <laughs> there. And and uh, tell us how you learned to become a pilot. What was the transition that what what was it like for you to tell your dad you didn't want to have anything to do with wrestling and you wanted to be a pilot <laughs> he, he didn't want me to be a wrestler I, something uh, tells me he was he was yeah. probably really thrilled to hear that you didn't yes want to da daddy um was was very interested in me um 
getting an education and um, doing something, probably not wrestling because I think he just worried about me, uh, maybe getting hurt or I, I don't know. But um, uh, so initially I, I had a circuitous route to becoming a pilot and that actually started out with being a paramedic. And, um, and just a funny thing with daddy, he was always very proud of me. When I started paramedic school, I wasn't even a paramedic yet. He's telling everybody I'm a paramedic. <laughs> And so I've become a paramedic and I get on the helicopter as a flight paramedic. So I worked as a flight paramedic for a few years, loved it. And, but I always wanted to fly since I was little, I'd wanted to fly airplanes and getting on the helicopter as a flight paramedic. I knew instantly that I wanted to, to fly them. And so in 1998, I went to flight school. And so that was the segue. So I've been a helicopter pilot for 24 years, and I've flown tours. I flew offshore in the Gulf of Mexico, flying the oil workers on the platforms out there, landing on ships. Um, and then I've uh, been flying emergency medical services for um, 19 years. That's amazing. Yeah, you I just, really enjoy it. And thank you for your service. Well, thank you. That's very nice of you. I, I feel very grateful. I'm, I'm very lucky. Tell us what's behind you on the on your walls. Are those degrees? It's, it's such a small postage stamp picture. I can't really see, Russell. Yeah. Maybe open it up or enlarge it, but maybe tell us. Yeah, well, a lot of it is my, so my husband flew um, F-18 Hornets, which is, that's the same plane the Blue Angels fly. So he flew those in the, um, with the Marine Corps, which is a division of the Navy. And so a lot of the pictures are his, um, his stuff from that. And then, uh, and then we've, um, just got uh, models of our airplanes and helicopters. Did back. your husband fly in combat? Yes. Uh, which in which? Uh, he was in the last thing he was in was Operation Southern Watch. Oh wow! So yeah. that wasn't that long ago. Yeah. I'll send you pictures for years and years through the San Francisco Examiner newspaper and the Chronicle, the other newspaper. I went uh, to where the Blue Angels would, you know, every year during Fleet Week in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. They would come out and they'd be, I think it was called Moffett Field, part of Oakland Airport. They'd have the special area. So I would take pictures of them there, taking off, returning. And, you know, it was always a thrill because they would go right over my house in Alameda, which is a military yeah. town. Uh, back, forth, you know, it's like Thursday practice. The shows were Saturday, Sunday, right. Friday, bigger practice. But a, a lot of the workers, they were so beloved in San Francisco, as Russ can attest, they would go up to the top of like all of the skyscrapers, like my 450 Sutter Medical Dental Buildings. I was a dentist there, and we go to the top to see them come by. You know, late 70s, 80s, they're just amazing. They're a big deal in Southern California. Uh, Jonathan, let me throw back to you for one final time. And um, do you do they have fighter flights? You know, similar annual events uh, like with the Blue Angels up there. We do actually. We've actually had the Blue Angels come in and. Um fly over here too i was just going to say so tail end of august beginning of september until labor day uh, we have what's called the canadian national exhibition it's kind of um, a huge fair that's based in toronto and the canadian international air show performs every year at this so if you live anywhere uh, basically from midtown toronto southbound we're basically in the flight path for the planes as they fly over and sometimes you get to see them and you certainly hear them and it's basically an opportunity for our air force to put on a show fly in formation that kind of thing it's always a, a something that we look forward to 
and it's a bit of a moment of uh, military pride for a country where um, Oh, really, over the last several decades, we've reduced our military presence comparatively, certainly compared to the U.S., but it is an ongoing moment of uh, pride for us when it comes to aviation particularly. Yeah. I remember as a little kid in the early 60s when they'd start breaking the sound barrier, we were all jazz, you know, as little, little kids. It was like the biggest thing on the planet. Jonathan, any more questions as to uh, Al's or Candy's history? I mean, we've just scratched the surface of what Lord Alfred Hayes, well, Judo Al Hayes was and meant to us as a pro wrestler. Yeah, the other stuff was funny. We have such fond memories, but your your dad, again, kick-ass babyface and heel manager and, and uh, wrestler worker. So, Jonathan, any more? Uh, so he, were you aware of all this history in Montreal? Yes. Wow. Yeah. No, he 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 made an impact wherever he went. And again, I think one of the, the really key parts is is that his influence isn't felt not only in terms of his performances, but in terms of how he influenced the acts of those who followed him. He really kind of contributed. I've said it before, basically two really separate strong archetypes that you still see today. Um, particularly interesting if you go back to the Judo Al Hayes version, where, I mean, there is a really strong tradition of catch wrestling within the UK, where you have the Wigan School, for example, but he forged his own idea based on a different martial art and built a whole career off that before he transitioned to this more kind of uh, flamboyant heel character. Um, one thing that I was going to say even going into the time with the WWF, I think that, you know, it's easy to give that short shrift because it was more of a comedic presence that he had. But if you listen to the commentary that he did, particularly alongside Gorilla Monsoon, he was very capable of telling a story that supported what was going on in the ring, which is what it's all about. He was very good um, at a time where you had performers like Bobby Heenan or Jesse Ventura, who would be over the top in terms of rooting for the bad guys, in terms of their role, he could play it straight and he could manipulate his the language that he used to provide a more to provide a more subtle and reasoned kind of support for the bad guys and what they were doing. Um, he was really over the top, more kind of a thinking man's character. And I think that that's worth noting as well. Um, and I think even when he was doing comedy, broader comedy, he was great at it and he committed to it. And I think that's one of the the things that I know it, when Candy was speaking that, you know, he could certainly wink to her directly. But so far as the audience was aware, he so, he sold what he was doing excellently. And I, and I think that's worth noting. You know, was the one thing too was he was the first guy to sort of uh, during the McMahon nationalization from maybe, say, February 84, maybe even earlier, to break gay fame, and nobody told him not to call uh, Gorilla Monsoon Gino. And he was starting to call him that, you know, Gino in reference when they're doing commentary. And that was my favorite part of him there because, yeah, he was tended to be more serious. He was concerned about the faces and possibly guys getting hurt. So he was really painting that picture, just as Jonathan said. Let me throw out, and, and Russ can probably throw in some names too. When I bring up some names, like let's say Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan, what, what do you recall your dad saying about those guys and maybe Jesse Ventura and other dance partners at the yeah. state? Yeah, well, um, 
Yeah, uh, the first Bobby Heenan and Grandma soon, I mean, definitely knew them. He would talk about them a lot. Um, and it was always good. Um, uh, Jesse uh, Ventura, Daddy, um, liked him a lot. They were very friendly. Um, he was very nice. Um, I, I distinctly remember having several interactions with him, and he was always very, very kind to me. Um, yeah, good guy. But but the Bobby Heenan thing, they'd known each other for years and years and years from the AWA, possibly even prior to that, uh, well before either one got up to WWF. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I do remember him, but not, well, I mean, the, the ones I, I remember well are Andre the Giant. I mean, we spent a lot of time with him, a lot of time with Billy Robinson. Um, those are the people that I, um, uh, Hulk Hogan. Um and obviously, um, Sergeant Slaughter was, you know, he was the one. I mean, I've spent tons of time with Kelly and Nikki, his daughters, and um, um, that was, you know, I felt like I lived with them for a while. Kelly was very young. Nikki, the older sister, we played more. But, um, but yeah, more, more um, uh, uh, you know, with Sergeant Slaughter's kids and that family. That's who we knew the best. Yeah, because we heard uh, uh, Kelly talk about you know your dad's thoughts or her dad's thoughts on Al. They were dear friends, and like oh, very much so. Yeah. yeah, I was their golf caddy. I would uh, drive them around, and they would they played golf all the time. And my favorite thing to do was to drive the golf cart. And I was too young to drive it. I mean, I was like fourteen years old, but um, I wasn't allowed to drive it. So one of them would drive the golf cart onto the course, and then as soon as they couldn't see us anymore, I would drive, and they would be drinking and playing golf, and I'm driving the golf cart. <laughs> and then when we would get close to getting back to, to uh, the finish, one of them would jump in the driver's seat. <laughs> wow. Uh, does In the back of your mind, I know you're so happy doing what you do as a, uh, uh emergency flight uh, uh, pilot, but does, does the back of your mind, especially seeing how big wrestling has become since then, do you ever think in the back of your mind, what if, what if you had been involved in wrestling? And if so, how would you have wanted to be involved? <laughs> uh, I actually have not. I'm not the type of person that likes to be front and center. I, I like to be in the background. Um, just even doing something like this is a thing for me. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm not, uh, it's pretty natural on the mic, by the way. You am I? Okay, well, that's yeah. very nice to hear. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't. I'm like a background person. I'm, I don't like to have. I don't like to have all the attention. Um, so, yeah, no, I hadn't. I've never thought to do that. Um, I'm very proud of my father, and I think it's really interesting. Uh, but it wouldn't have been something that I would have done if I did. I, it would have been something in the background. Russ, I just what? sent you. So, Russ, I just sent you. So, please try to bring them up. Uh, the two photos that Candy sent me of the helicopter that she flies during doing these emergency missions. If you can bring them up and pop them up, those are uh, shots that Candy took herself. Uh, well, Russ is doing it, Candy, your dad also was one of those, like a Vic and Ted Christie, a gentle rib artist versus guys on the other end of the spectrum, Buddy Rogers and his pal who we called Booby, Johnny Valentine, were doing some perhaps more malicious ones. Uh, but do you remember so, do you, you remember your dad? Th those would be like a rib is a practical joke to make the time go by when they're in a car. Do you remember any specific ribs or road stories that your dad may have told uh, you guys? Um, 
I don't, uh, not really. I do remember, and I think I, I told you this in an email, um, I would go, when my after my parents divorced, I would go spend extended periods of time with my dad, and some frequently just me, not my brother. And I, I think I told you that I traveled, I went on a long road trip throughout northern Canada with Greg, uh, Gagne, Greg Gagne um, and a couple of other wrestlers and my dad. And we were in a big, like, Ford van just driving around for, like, two weeks. <laughs> Me, I was, like, 14 with all those wrestlers. <laughs> and we drove all through northern Canada. And the funny thing is, is they were kind of like Renaissance men. I remember they were super into the, the uh, one of the Superman uh, soundtrack. And we would listen to that. And they would listen to classical music. And it, it perhaps wasn't what you would think it would have been. Um, and they were... It's just a funny memory. Um, it almost, it sounds like a sitcom, you know, the me riding around with them. But, um, yeah, he didn't, I don't know of any specific stories of their road trips beyond the one that I was on. Here's a picture of your cop there. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just forwarded it to Russ, if he can show that. I mean, that's pretty. Oh, there she is. <laughs> Wow, that's fantastic. It says Children's Health on it. Yes, I find two different ones. That one is for the Dallas Children's Hospital, and then I fly another one that's a multi-role helicopter that does uh, kind of everything, a yellow and black one. I didn't send you a picture of that one, but uh, but that's, yeah, that's one of them. That's a Sikorsky S-76. It's kind of like the Blackhawk. The UH-60 Blackhawk is, is a Sikorsky. This is sort of sort of a civilian version of that. Nice. Have you ever flown in the, like, scary, you know, because helicopters sometimes you really have to be a student on your toes if weather's bad. Yes, the answer is yes to whatever you're going to say. <laughs> I'm scared myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've flown for a long time. I mean, you can't fly helicopters for as long as I have and, and not, you know, scared yourself a few times. But, but I am fully, uh, we're at what's called an IFR helicopter. So we fly um, in, um, I, I would say all weather, but we fly in the clouds. It's almost like an airliner. We shoot instrument approaches and I mean, we can't fly in icing or thunderstorms, but we do fly in very low weather conditions safely. And you're flying solo. There's no co-pilot. No, it's a two, I fly the yellow and black helicopters, the ones, the, the all purpose ones I fly by myself. And then that big one you just saw, we fly two pilots. Wow. 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 Yeah. Let, let me throw back to you and Russ one last time. Sure. Um, actually, so the apart, so you'd mentioned that you've flown for basically since the mid nineties. Yeah. So, um, of the, what would you say has been the most challenging flight that you've had? That would be memorable. <laughs> um, gosh, I mean, the medical. I I would say the most challenging are the nighttime scene flights like major accidents kind of out in the middle of nowhere on little farm to market roads at like 3 a.m where it's just pitch black you've just woken up because we're at it's similar to a fire station so we're you know we're possibly being woken out of sleep and then you're expected to be flying a complex aircraft within just you know a couple two or three minutes headed to a scene talking on 10 different radios getting finding it and then yeah just figuring out how to safely land the helicopter in a place where an aircraft has never landed. Um, so th those are the most challenging flights we do, I would say. So if I can ask, what kind of crew runs a helicopter? Because obviously you'd need the pilot, but you'd also have... Yeah, so we have a flight paramedic and a flight nurse. 
Yeah, and then on the children's helicopter, um, we also carry a respiratory therapist. So there's three of them because it's a pretty big helicopter, so we can get more people in there. And you yourself are a trained emergency technician. Uh, yeah, I'm a paramedic, and I, I still maintain my certification, but I don't work as one. I just maintain it. But, but uh, push came to shove. I think you probably get have to get involved in the action sometimes. I try not to. Yeah, because it's it's really it's not my job. And as pilots, we're expected to compartmentalize just to fly the aircraft, and that's our 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 job. That's what we do. And um, the only thing I really do is help them. Sometimes I'll help them load and unload. And um, I mean, obviously, I know certain things, and they know I know certain things. But they are so good at what they do um, that, yeah, they they don't need a pilot trying to tell them what to do. <laughs> and then, um, as you said, you only get so long to be a pilot. What do you think you would do after you're done being uh, uh, flying? Do you think you might? Uh, <laughs> Uh, I don't, I th well, just I don't think I'll do. I, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I think about doing safety consulting. Um, I'm really involved in safety at our company, um, so I could do that or be an expert witness. I've been asked to do that before um, for aviation. Um, but uh, we have an RV. We like to go and travel in in the RV and yeah, just relax. And I try to work hard, play hard is my mantra. If I'm not flying the helicopter, we're traveling somewhere. Drive on out to LA and then come on up to San Francisco, and then drive all the way up to Canada and you can see all, visit all three of us. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I need a long time off work to do that. <laughs> Andy, we've got to, to do that. We've got to wrap up. I want to say right before uh, I logged in here, I watched uh, Cream, that's Eric Clapton's, well, one of his super groups, uh, perform at their very final performance at Royal Albert Hall in England, you know, very, very famous. Uh, but they were doing weight room, and uh, it's pretty amazing. So that's my song of the week to recommend. Do you have some social media or any causes, anything you'd like, like for what you do in Texas? Can people contribute? But what what things would you like to plug? This is your time to plug. Yeah, well, first of all, I have to give a shout out to Slaughter Daughter, to Kelly Remus, for <laughs> introducing me to you guys. I appreciate that. Um, and... Um, yeah, I don't. Uh, my, my favorite charity is St. Jude's. So whenever I can, I contribute to St. Jude's. Um, but yeah, that's it. You said that uh, you didn't know him as Bob Remus. What what was your name? And now I forget. You emailed Matthew. So that was like, I guess, his kayfabe name. I thought that was his real name was Matthew. Like, once again, you know, I, I don't know. That's what daddy only ever called him Matthew. And uh, yeah, so the story behind Kelly and I hooking up again after so many years was we're a huge ice hockey family. Both my sons play ice hockey. We're big ice hockey fans. Daddy was a huge ice hockey fan when we lived in Minnesota and we would go see the, the North Stars play. And, you know, they happened to move to Dallas and become the Dallas Stars. So we go see them. Um, anyway, so Sergeant Slaughter was at a Dallas Stars game um, about a year and a half ago. And it got onto social media. People were going nuts because he, you know, he stands up in the audience and everybody's talking to him and it's all over social media. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's Matthew. And so I just commented on there. I, I think I saw maybe Kelly had commented or there was something. And I said, Matthew, um, or so good to see Matthew there or something. And I honestly thought that was his name, so I didn't think that comment would stand out, and Kelly zeroed in on it immediately. She's like, and she saw my last name, because on social media, I've got, the, you know, Hayes, and she's like, that's got to be 
uh, Lord Al's daughter. And so she immediately sent me a message, and then we've been messaging back and forth since then. And I'm hoping to get up there and see them. I haven't told her that yet, but I would love to. Jonathan, you got to be a big Maple. Are you a Maple Leafs fan? I guess you have to say it, whether you are or not. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to be a total heel. I'm a Habs fan. Oh. Uh. <laughs> well, and I like our our second favorite team are the Canucks. Can we go see them play quite a bit whenever we go through Vancouver? So we've got all the uh, the Vancouver uh, Canucks jerseys that we wear. And <laughs> well, we missed your dad. Your dad was one of the nicest people ever. Just a sweetheart guy. But what a career, and I hope people take away from this, what a tremendous wrestler, athlete, martial arts master, apart from his WWE thing, which we love too, but respect the athlete, respect Judo Al Hayes. He also he, sounds like he was a very devoted family man. Yes. Absolutely. Very much. Love children, love dogs, loved us. <laughs> yeah, and I just want to thank you too. All of you have um, had such nice things to say about him. And uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. And it's just really good to hear it. Well, there's not always a lot of true, genuine, good human beings in wrestling. There are more so now. The old days, those were diamonds or diamonds in the rough. And your dad was way at the top of that diamond heap. So our show dedicated to Lord Alfred Hayes, of course, again, third show in a row. We're dedicating to Judo Jean LaBelle, who we lost. He has a service coming up next month. I'll be speaking at. And uh, thank you so much. Candy. You. Yes, you're a wonderful guest. Thanks for coming on the show again, John. My pleasure. Thank you. We appreciate Thank you your for having me. Uh, please give a quick plug for Slam Wrestling. For oh, yeah, Jonathan. Sure. Uh, so I write a column every two weeks for SlamWrestling.net. It's called Wrestler's Court uh, with Jonathan Schwartz. This week, I it just came out this morning, and I'm focusing on why there's way too many titles across AEW and WWE right now and how complicated the title picture is. Um, and generally speaking, just kind of looking at how wrestling fits into other things because there's certainly more to life than just wrestling. Um, there it is. Yep, yeah, Absolutely. But it's nice that it fits in every so often and that it's provided a great way to meet wonderful people like I have today. Thank you so much. And everybody, nice to see you. Go now to the MTV Music Video Awards. They're on right now. <laughs> Are they? <laughs> well, uh, uh, we'd love to have you on in, in the future if you have anything to promote or anything you want to talk about with us um, about your dad. You know, if you ever Wait, write a book, I want to ask something. Is oh, that has to be in the WWE Hall of Fame? Is he or is he not? Yes, he is. He was inducted a couple of years ago, and I had no idea. Um, he was a legacy inductee. Yes, a legacy inductee. Someone had um, contacted me, the British Wrestling uh, Reunion Association, which I happened. I, someone found me, the leader of that, through Facebook. And, um, and he goes, hey, did you know your dad was inducted? I'm like, I had no idea. And so I knew there had to be an award. So I kept, it's so funny. I have no special back line or anything to WWE. So I kept calling the, their like only line. And they would think they would immediately send me to the fan line. And this went on for like three months. And I left a couple of messages. I finally, sometimes I would get to a place where I could leave a message and like nothing. And then finally, all of a sudden, one day I get this call and they're like, can't they? <laughs> and they were like, there was an old wrestler in there and some other people. They were all on the phone with me and so excited. But it was so hard to get through to them. But ultimately, they did send me. Um, I have the award. They send me um, a couple of the programs. So I do have it. But, um, yeah. 
All right, I'll I'll email you about that tomorrow. Thank you very much, Candy. Uh, Thank you, everyone. Again, part of our show tonight, and uh, merci beaucoup, everybody. We will see you next week on the show. Actually, Good night, everyone. Bye. Bye, bye, everybody. Good night. Bye. Good night.